in the New Testament, one of the, the greatest prayers prayed by the Apostle Paul is regarding union with Christ. It's in Ephesians chapter 3. So I'm going to pray it just as it is as we come uh, to think upon union with Christ. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So the last two weeks we've been working through Romans chapter 6 and in particular verses 1 through 10. This is an incredible chapter. This is an incredible letter. It's the greatest letter ever written. That's the, the title of our series. And we are meditating easily on the greatest doctrine uh, that we're given in Scripture in light of uh, Christ's person and work for us, union with Christ. And yet it's one of the most neglected doctrines, and that is to the great spiritual detriment of God's people today. So two th weeks ago, we were thinking about what does it mean to be united to Christ in relation to his death? And Paul unpacked that reality, he said, so not only has Christ died for us, procuring for us the forgiveness of sins, but we have died with Christ. And what that means is because we've died with Christ, we've been set free from the bondage, from dominion, from the mastery of sin over us. If you just look down at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6, you'll see this. We know, says Paul, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. So, so no more are we under the dominion. No more are we under the tyranny of sin. We're now in the kingdom of his son. We're now under the reign of his grace. Last week we came back and then we thought about union with Christ in relation to the resurrection. So if you look at verse 5, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So just as Christ died for us and we died with Christ, so as Christ rose in the third day, we too were raised with him. And that means that we now live in the newness of life. We are now new creations. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in us. And truly, truly, this is mind-blowing stuff. But if we miss Paul's teaching on union with Christ, it really is to our detriment. I'm absolutely convinced 
You cannot live the Christian life as God intends if you do not understand that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. In our relationship both to sin and to God, the determining factor of our existence is our union with Christ. What union with Christ really means for us is that no longer does your past define you. His past, his life, his death, his resurrection. It doesn't only define your past, it defines your present and it will define your future. The basic framework of your life's existence is that you are now in Christ and Christ is now in you. And the reason Paul is so so eager that we would grasp these facts is because he knows it's these truths that have a life-changing significance for us. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson. When we are joined to Jesus, his life and power become available to us to transform us. We may even go so far as to say that when we're united to Christ, the whole of his past life is made available to us, not simply to compensate for our past by way of pardon, but actually to sanctify our present lives so that our own past may not dominate our present Christian life. Now, against this backdrop of looking at verses 1 through 10, we now come to look at verse 11. And here's the application. Now, kind of need to caveat that. You're all eager tonight, I know, for really practical application, but tonight it's practical application with the Apostle Paul. And that means it's practical theology. That means it's theology that is practical, that needs to be worked out in our lives. So, so one of the things we've, we've, I've been trying to stress is Christ's death and resurrection, they're not just significant for our justification. Christ's death and resurrection, they're also significant for our sanctification. Christ's death and resurrection is the pattern that sets our life in the here and now. And and Paul's statement that Christ, that we've died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ, it's now going to become, these indicative facts, is now going to be turned into a command. We need to die. Consider ourselves, reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. I asked this question two weeks ago. This week, this past week, have you thought of yourself as dead to sin? Have you thought of yourself as alive to God? Well, tonight, that's what the Apostle Paul wants us to explore. Three points for us. Number one, we have got to know union with Christ in our minds. Number two, we've got to know it in our hearts. And number three, if we get there, we've got to live it by our will. Maybe I could summarize it with three words. Know, reckon, submit. Know, reckon, submit. So the first thing is this. We need to know that we are united with Christ. Now, as I said, 
This is going to be practical. And the first thing I'm saying is you need to know something. How practical is that? You might not think it's practical at all, but listen, knowing in the Christian life is key to living. Knowing who you are in Christ is key to living out your Christian life. You know, when I was a young Christian, I used to always think this. When you become a mature Christian, it's because you grow in understanding the deeper things of God. So you grow in an understanding of doctrine. And so if you grow in an understanding of doctrine, you'll become a really mature Christian. That's why I used to think. And then the more I've grown up as a Christian, I've come to discover that actually the Christian life is about grasping the very basic truths of Christianity, which are doctrine, like union with Christ. You just heard me say that. A basic truth of Christianity is union with Christ. You see, Paul expects every Christian to have this understanding that we're united with Christ. Look at verse 3 again. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Look at verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Over and over again, Paul says, listen, the key to you living your Christian life is that you know some things. And what you need to know is that you're united with Christ, you're dead to sin, and that you're alive to God. And so, question number one is, do you know this? Like, intellectually, have you grasped it? Mentally, do you know this? Sinclair Ferguson, in this amazing book, um, it's just been republished by the Baron Triff, The Christian Life. It says in the back, back of it, Christian doctrine matters for Christian living. It says this, the conviction that Christian doctrine matters for Christian living is one of the most important growth points of the Christian life. Let me say that again, right? The conviction that Christian doctrine matters for Christian living is one of the most important growth points of the Christian life. When you understand who you are, it will shape, it will inform how you live out your Christian life. You cannot live out what you do not know. And sanctification is understanding that we are united with Christ and the practical outworking of that is that we know that we belong to Christ, we're new creations, and so we're dead to sin and we're alive to God. So let me tell you how this knowledge is practical. Every single time there's a serious pastoral problem in one of the Pauline epistles, do you know that his pastoral strategy is to turn to the Christian and say, do you not know this? Do you not know who you are in Christ? Do you not know that you're dead to sin and you're alive to God? If you get your Bible there, just, just turn over to Paul's letter to the Colossians. Let's see this up close, right? Colossians chapter 3, page 984, if you're using a church Bible. Paul starts naming all these sins. 
that plague God's people. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 7, in, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now listen to his transition here. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. After listing various kinds of sins that plague the believers in Colossae, Paul says, do you not, do you see what Paul does? He reminds them of this fundamental truth. This was your old self. You've put on the new self. It's being renewed in the, all, the, the, the knowledge of the image of your creator. And so live in light of who you are. Live in light of your union with Christ. First Corinthians, everywhere, everywhere in that letter, Paul's pastoral tactic is, do you not know who you are in Christ? So the people who are engaging in sexual sin, Paul says to them in chapter 6 of First Corinthians, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Paul's point again and again is if if you're going to live out the Christian life, you've got to know who you are in Christ. Now, we live in a cultural moment that's really fascinating. Our culture is obsessed with identity. Identity politics is everywhere. Everything is played on. Your race, your gender, your sex, your political viewpoints, everything. Make your own identity. Discover your own identity. Now, it's one thing for a culture to have major, major problems with identity. It's quite another thing for God's people to forget their identity, to not know who they are in Christ. I'm going to be really simple, and I think it's because this is the Pauline way of thinking about it, but the reason you and I sin, the reason you and I do things that are either forbidden in Scripture or we take good things and we make them God things and so we we become idolatrous, the reason we do that is because we forget who we are. In Christ. We, we, we totally forget it. And so Paul, every time in his pastoral ministry, is trying to remind Christians of who they are. And so, so, so following through with this first point of application, you've got to know who you are. What practically speaking could you do to come to grips with this reality of who you are in Christ? I think answer number one is to pray. It's to pray Ephesians 3. It's to pray, or to read Jesus' prayer in John 17. Do you know what he prayed? He said, Father, as you and I are one, I pray that they would know there's you and me, that I am in them. He prayed that we would know that our reality of union with Christ 
And if you pray in, in line with God's will, his revealed will in his scripture, God delights to hear your prayers and answer them. Second thing I'd suggest you do is you just meditate, as we were singing about there in, in the Psalms, meditate upon God's word. Meditate upon the New Testament. I guarantee you every single letter, even in Jesus' own ministry, we actually touched on it this morning, everywhere is this reality of union with Christ. Any of you want to confess or own up to watching The Godfather? You ever watch The Godfather? You know that series of films on, on the mafia? If you've ever watched them, you know the most striking thing about The Godfather films? Never will you hear the word mafia. It's all about the mafia. There's no mention of the mafia. And the really strange thing is you read through the New Testament and you won't find doctrine of union with Christ. But it's everywhere. You can't miss it. In Christ, with Christ, for Christ, Christ in you. It's everywhere. But it's never mentioned in those words, union with Christ. United with him, but not in the ways I say it. So the same thing is, read. I'm going to give two book suggestions. This book is absolutely excellent. As I said, right, if you think growing in maturity is wrestling with a deep theology, wrestle with this. Doctri doctrinal Introduction to the Christian Life, Sinclair Ferguson. And here's a really popular, really practical book, Union with Christ, Rankin Wilborn. I mentioned it last week. Absolutely excellent. And in this section, he's got a biblical theology of union with Christ. Okay, so that's the first point, right? You've got to know in your mind who you are. You know the greatest or the longest journey a man or a woman can take? It's a journey between their head and their heart. You see, it's one thing to know this, but it's another thing to feel this. It's another thing for this to have captured and captivated your affections. And so the second point is we must not only know union with Christ, but we must affirm union with Christ in our heart. In verse 11, which is really the focus of this evening, so is the first word. So if you've got these truths in light of the knowledge you've received about you being united with a risen Christ, so Paul says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. One of Paul's favorite words is the word consider, count, reckon. It's this idea of calculate. It's this idea of calculating to, to credit something to someone. Consider, count, reckon. You know, we, we use that expression in English. You need to recognize this about yourself. Your thought about that expression actually doesn't make grammatical sense in one sense, but we all know what it means. It really speaks of a command to be carried out by oneself on oneself. And that's the exact same thing about this command. You must consider, you must reckon with who you are and what it means for you. Interestingly, the tense of it in the original, it's an ongoing verb, an ongoing process. It's a daily basis. You must reckon yourself, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And as a 
a young person, like a really young kid. I used to remember my friends always saying to me, see if you see someone walking down the streets and they're talking to themselves, it's a sign that they're crazy. Did you, did you remember that? That was it sort of thing. That's a load of nonsense. In fact, the older I've become as a Christian, I'm absolutely convinced that see if you do not talk to yourself, if you do not preach the gospel to yourself, you'll never be able to reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. If you see me walking down the street and I'm talking to myself and I've not got a phone and there's no one next to me, just know that I'm, I hope I'm preaching the gospel to myself. If you come into the man's and you hear me in the study and you hear a voice and you know I'm not on a Zoom call and you know I'm not on the phone, just know that I'm trying to preach the gospel to myself. Every day, brothers and sisters, you want practical application, you need to learn to preach the gospel to yourself. The longest journey a man or woman will ever make is a journey from their head to their heart. And the way that you can take the knowledge of union with Christ is to preach it to yourself. When the work of Christ for us becomes abstracted from the person of Christ within us, there's this huge chasm. And so we need to know that the work of Christ for us and the person of Christ is within us. And they meet together as we proclaim this truth to ourselves. England's arguably greatest theologian ever produced, English theologian, is John Owen. John Owen has forgotten more than I've ever learned. Like, you go read his writings, I'm an unbelievable thinker. He, he was this incredible theologian. He was this incredible preacher. He told others about the riches of knowing Jesus Christ. But you know, in, in, in his writings, he, he confessed in one place. He lamented this reality. That he did not have an experimental, an experiential acquaintance with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he knew these things. But, but in his heart of hearts, the, the affections, he was holding out Christ, but there, there was a detachment and he, he lamented it. And, and the way it was exposing him is that God brought a serious affliction to his life and it just undid him and it, it led him to the discovery of union with Christ. And so he penned these words. Union with Christ is the greatest, most honorable, and the glorious of all graces that we are made partakers of. When you understand who you are, it's got to grip who you are. You've got to feel it. It's got to shape your affections. So let me, let me give you an illustration. This may be an apocryphal story, but I think it's a true story. Augustine, the great North African bishop of the early church. You know, before he came to Christ, he was someone who indulged himself. Sex, sexual promiscuity. Him and his father would go to orgies all the time. He had a mistress. Well, he got converted. He became the bishop of Carthage. And one day he was walking down the street. And his mistress from his past life saw him. And she was, so she cried out to Augustine, Augustine, it is I. 
He stopped. He recognized the voice. He turned to her. And he thought for a moment. And then he responded, Yes, but it is no longer I, Augustine. What happened? He didn't just know it. He felt it. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God. In Christ Jesus. Now, when I say that, that probably doesn't do justice to what happened. I I don't know what happened. But let's just be honest, because all of us are sinners and all of us know the pathology of sin. You can imagine when he heard the sound of her voice. When he turned around and he saw her face. You can imagine that the temptation was real. Now we, we might wonder what went on in the mind of Augustine. But this is the, this is the other wonder. He's in, he was in Christ and Christ was in him. And when we apply faith, when we reckon, when we count, when we consider ourselves dead to sin, Christ delights to honor our inner affections and desires when they're pointed in the direction of him. Your greatest, your greatest weapon in your warfare against sin is to know who you are in Christ. To feel it and to live out of it. Now the reality of what happened to Augustine in that moment, the theological terms we put onto it is mortification and vivification. Mortification means to kill sin. Vivification means to live unto God or live unto righteousness. Now, John Calvin, he said, the biblical term that explains these two realities is repentance. Now, if you've got, if you've got like a, a shallow view of repentance, you think repentance is replacing a vice with a virtue. But in biblical terms, repentance is killing a sin and living unto righteousness, but all in dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Calvin wrote about repentance, he says both things happen, the mortification of the sin and the vivification of the inner spirit. Both things happen only by participation in Christ, meaning union with Christ. That's a link. If you're going to put sin to death, if you're going to live unto God, it's all because your moral obedience is rooted and grounded in Christ. The Apostle Peter, in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, speaks to this reality of knowing but feeling in our hearts this knowledge of union with Christ. I once preached on this, and I realized that the thing I did wrong was I didn't understand union with Christ. So I preached on it as just like imperative. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, since therefore Christ died, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves, prepare your minds for actions with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, whoever's died with Christ, has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
for the time there is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter says, if you're going to put to death sin and you're going to live unto righteousness, you've got to arm your mind. You've got to prepare your minds for action. You've got to set your mind to the key phrase in the, 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 the letter of Peter, the first letter, is set your minds on the grace of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, you got your Bible there. I want to show you this. Ephesians 4. Turn, turn to Ephesians 4. And this is where we're going to get really practical. This is where we're going to, God willing, face up to the reality of mortification and vivification. Go to Ephesians 4 and go to verse 20. Verses 20 and 21, it makes it absolutely clear that all of this is grounded in union with Christ. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Do you see that? Everything we need is in Jesus. We learn it from Jesus. You with Christ, right? Now look at what it says next. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. If it's your own Bible, feel free to circle those two words, deceitful desires. They're key here. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So so what, what Paul says here is he contrasts the old self, which belongs to your former life, is corrupted through deceitful desires, and he contrasts it with the new life which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then beginning in verse 25, what Paul does is he says, here are the practices you need to put away that are all associated with the old self, lying, stealing, sexual immorality, anger, obscene talk. And here's what they're to be replaced by in Christ, in your new self, speaking the truth, laboring to provide for others, compassion, kindness, and humility. But not just in of themselves. If you look at how it ends, as God in Christ forgave you. Verse 4. 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So everything that we're to do in the new self is to be done in Christ and by his Holy Spirit. So this reality of mortification, putting this into death, putting off the old man, and this reality of vivification, living a life to God, is all done in, in, in Christ and in his power. But here's where I want to get under the surface. The reason you and I indulge in sin is one, because we forget who we are, and two, because we never reckon with our deceitful desires of the old self. Think of the sins that you struggle with, that plague your life, You might think of the fruit of them, the outward action, the outward behavior. Paul's not interested in that. You're going to put that sin to death? If you try and put that sin to death, the outward behavior, right? You're not addressing anything. The problem is the deceitful desires within. That's what needs killed. That's what needs put to death. So, 
You struggle with sexual immorality, relations with other people physically. You struggle perhaps with pornography, or perhaps you just have a really overactive imagination and you indulge your mind in all sorts and manners of ways. What's the deceitful desires underneath that sin? Well, for all of us, it might be different. For some of us, it might be the idol of comfort. We, we turn to the sin because we're trying to comfort ourselves because of some pain in our life. We're using it to medicate ourselves. Some of us might turn to that sin because of power. You know, we've got the idol of power. We want to be in control. We want to be thought of as great. And so we use the sin and it makes us feel great about ourselves. Some of us might do it because of approval. We're, we're, we're too scared to say no. We're too scared to live unto God. And so we give in because we think if the other person, if they love me, I, I want to I honor them. I want their approval. I want their love. I want their affection. Some of us might give in to it because of security. I want security. And so this, this thing, it gives me a sense of security. It gives me a sense of meaning and purpose. Or what about materialism? Why, why is it we overindulge? Is it because we want it? Is, it? is it just because we want these material things? Is it because the sin that's underneath is really greed? We want everything. We, we want to be like God. We have this insatiable desire where we think we're God, we think everything we want, we should get. It's again because of approval. We want to be thought great by other people. Look at all that I've got. Look at all that I've amassed. Paul says, listen, if you're going to mortify sin, don't deal with the outward behavior. Understand it's the deceitful desires of your heart. It's them that lead you to sin. And sanctification realizes, I know my identity is in Christ. I know who I've become. I know that in Christ, in the new self, I don't gratify the desires of my sinful flesh or my sinful heart. I examine them. And I put them to death. So this might seem like a simple application, but honestly, when was the last time you examined the deceitful desires of your heart? Think of the sin, right, that you, that you, or the sins that you struggle with. When's the last time you really reckon with the fact that there's a sin under the sin that's causing you to do it? When was the last time you tried to put it to death? When was the last time you consider yourself dead? That is, you're not under his dominion, not under his mastery, but actually you're alive to Christ. You're living in the newness of life. You've got the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead at work in you. You've got Christ in you. And if you get Christ in you, why, why, says Paul to the Corinthians, would you drag Christ into your sin? If you've been transformed and brought into the glorious kingdom of the Son and you now live in the light, why are you going back to the, the corrupt desires of the past? In Galatians, Paul says in chapter 5, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. In our sanctification, the striving against sin is always growing in a personal awareness of the desires of the flesh and wanting to put them to death. If you're not killing your sin, let's be really honest, it is killing you. 
And what I mean by that, it's killing your relationship with God. It's killing your union and your communion. You ever wonder why it is you struggle to be in God's presence? You ever wonder why you struggle to pray? Now, the flesh is weak and the spirit is willing, but is it? Is it actually because you've let sin take a foothold in your heart and you don't want to put it to death? You want to cozy up with it. You don't want to suffocate it to death. You just want to live with it. Paul says, mortify it. It's of the old man. It's of Adam. Your story is you're in Christ. You're a new man. You're a new woman in him. You're a new creation. You've got Christ in you and you're in Christ. And so in light of that, live unto God. Arm yourselves with that right way of thinking. Count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Again, being practical, here, here's a dare. <laughs> Find someone you really trust, a brother and sister in Christ. Preferably of the same sex. doesn't matter what the sins are, but maybe confess your sins. Maybe ask them, what do you think is a sin under this sin? You know, the reality of union with Christ is we've been brought into one body and the commands of the New Testament say we share one another's burdens, we confess our sins to one another, we pray with one another, we exhort one another, we rebuke one another, we love one another, we pray for one another. Here's the amazing reality of union with Christ. Sanctification is not an individual task. It's a community job. It's a covenant community job. And if you're going to deal with your sin, why don't you expose it to the light? And why don't you expose it to the help of God's people and to the medicine that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and to prayer and to the power of the Holy Spirit? John Owen, to close with. John Owen says that if if he was to boil down pastoral ministry, he said there's two problems, in essence, in all churches. Problem number one. And in John Owen's writings, this would have many subdivisions (laughs) because he knows so much. But if we were to boil it down, he would say, to persuade those who truly are under the dominion of sin that they are under the dominion of sin. That's the task of evangelism. Those who are still in Adam need to know that they are in bondage and slavery to sin. And pastoral job number one is to persuade those who are in bondage to sin. You really are in bondage to sin and you need a savior. Pastoral problem number two, to persuade those who are no longer under the dominion of sin, you are no longer under the dominion of sin. You are free to live for God. You are united to Christ. And so you got to know this, you got to feel this, and you got to submit your body, your instruments, all of your being to this, knowing you can do nothing, but with him who gives you strength, you can do all things that pleases him. With him abiding in you and you abiding in him, you can say, it is no longer I. I've been crucified with Christ.
The life I now live is by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Truly, union with Christ applied to our life is this. So consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Let's pray. God, if there's any sin that we need to confess, it's that we we're so prone to forget who we are in Christ because we're so busy, distracted, think about thinking about other things. Our minds aren't set on the things above that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God, but our minds are just so taken up with things of this earth. And so we pray you'd have mercy upon us. Forgive us for when we're so ignorant of our identity. When the things we ought to know, we don't know. And the things that we do know that we should always be reminding ourselves of, we never tell ourselves. We never preach the gospel to ourselves. But we realize that the, the, the whole reality that we have been grafted into Christ and Christ is in us by the Holy Spirit, this, that, that truth alone is cause for such thankfulness and such wonder and such amazement that it is fuel for obedience. And yet, because we never really grapple with it, because we don't let it sink from our head to our heart, we don't go after you with that ruthless obedience, that ruthless striving of your presence. Got to think of John Owen and the fact that he, he came to recognize that he didn't have that experiential, experimental acquaintance with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew many things about you. He even preached you. And yet you and your infinite wisdom through works of providence brought him to that place where he came to discover this glorious reality. I pray the same would be true of us. Do whatever it takes so that we would come to know who we are. God, as a church community, we can so often just be, be acquaintances. We can be nice with one another. And yet, Lord, we know that, that, that our own sinful hearts are so wicked that we don't even understand them. We do things and we don't even know why we do things. We do things you forbid us from doing. And we do things that you want us to do, but we turn that good thing into a God thing. And so we make a big deal out of it when it's you and you alone that should have captivated our mind's heart and affection and attention. And so, God, we pray that even as we go from here, we would do business, that we would reckon with our sinful desires so that we might put them to death. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, strengthen us in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith and that we would grasp, we would comprehend his amazing love for us and we would be filled with the fullness of God. We thank you that as we pray this, we can ask it and we know that you can do abundantly more than we can ask, think, or even imagine by the power that is at work within us for the glory of of your son's name.
And it's, we ask it in him. Amen.